Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Inside the Blue Jays podcast. I'm Mitch Bannon and I'm here with an even more sunburnt Ethan Diamandis and we're the two writers for Inside the Blue Jays at SI.com. Wrapping up our spring training trip to Dunedin, Florida, Ethan and I take a look back at a busy news week in Blue Jays land. We'll hit on the recent Toronto trade, some business news from our chat with Mark Shapiro, and how the Jays roster will shape up for opening day. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Well, Mitch, there's been no shortage of storylines since we arrived here today. I think, uh, you know, we weren't here for the first week. Uh, we came in the middle thinking things might go into a bit of a lull, but uh, there's been plenty of storylines for us to cover um, both on and off the field. I guess not something that we expected, um, but we're, you know, ready to cover it all the same. Um, we'll start off, I guess, by addressing something right off the top. Um, on Thursday night, early Friday morning, uh, Blue Jays pitching coach Pete Walker um, was arrested and charged with driving under the influence. Uh, he was pulled over in the morning, uh, failed sobriety tests, according to uh, Pinellas County Sheriff records. Um, he admitted to drinking four beers uh, at, at a bar um, and he was booked, charged and released on $500 bond. Um, recently, we had a chance to hear from Pete, he gave a statement in which he he apologized to the Blue Jays, to the fans, uh, and to his family. He was very uh, he was very emotional. He didn't take questions, um, and so the latest update in that um, incident has been that Walker has now decided to plead not guilty, according to uh, Pinellas County records. Um, he waived his pre-trial hearing. Um, and he's represented by um, a lawyer named Caitlin B. Staddle of Clearwater, Florida. Um, that's all we know at the moment. Um, Mitch, I guess, what do we know about Pete's role going forward? Yeah, I think we'll, we'll make it clear that we're not legal experts. We're not inside the Blue Jays organization making these decisions, but from what we know and from what's been told to us, Pete is going to stay with the team for now. And the organization's kind of message publicly and privately has been that they're collecting information. They're kind of in an information collecting stage right now. And so how I read that is they're just waiting for next steps. We're all kind of waiting to see what happens with this incident. And with the not guilty plea, it sounds like we're just going to be waiting for a trial date or what happens next. We will kind of find out and we're kind of like the rest of the world. We don't know a whole lot here. We're in a holding pattern. Yeah. The, the idea um, that Walker might not be able to enter Canada has been uh, discussed because traditionally, if you do have a drinking and driving charge and it's making it clear now that um, that's a conviction rather. So Pete Walker has not been convicted yet. Um, he's presumed innocent until proven guilty. Um, but if you do have a drinking and driving conviction, there could be some issues with the border, though there are some um, exemptions that you can apply for. Um, I think of Tony LaRusso's uh, similar incident and conviction uh, last offseason, I believe it was, or two offseasons ago. Just before he got hired, I believe. Yeah. So 
you know, there's there's a bit of precedent there, but we'll keep you updated when uh, when we learn more information. Um, a few days before that, um, Mitch and I were part of the media tour around Toronto's new player development complex in uh, in Dunedin, Florida. It's quite the facility, and uh, Blue Jays president Mark Shapiro was quite excited to to, to show it off. Um, I don't know. It's probably about an hour tour. We saw everything from the gym to the weight room to some of the uh, hitting and pitching labs to uh, cafeteria. Um, it was it was a cool experience, uh, and it, it really gives you um, a bit of an inside look into you know, how the Blue Jays are treated and and you know what the players go through on a daily basis here uh, in Dunedin. Mitch, what what stood out to you the most? Yeah, I think it was interesting because you got the tour from Mark Shapiro and it could very much seem like it was his baby. He was very proud to show off his nice shiny new baby that they've had for a few years and haven't really been able to use until this off season uh, just because of COVID and because of the many different ballparks they've played in. Uh, I think the one thing that kind of stood out for me was the, the strategies in mixing major and minor league players. It was very thought out at every single level they had uh, every locker room was kind of separated. There's the major league locker room, which is very nice and exactly what you would think it would be with. I think they had a blue Jays logo with different changing lights that could spin around on top of it and super fancy stuff like that. And then as you go down, there was the triple a locker room, the double a locker room, et cetera. And they got a little bit worse uh, as you got lower and lower, but then there was also some shared spaces, which kind of allowed the minor league players to look at the major leaguers work. And that seemed very strategic. And I talked to a few guys, both on the major and minor league side about that. And it kind of seems like it's had the desired effect. Trent Palmer, uh, a pitching prospect said he's got to lift with a guy like Sean Anderson, who was on the 40 man and then got waived, isn't on the 40 man right now, but they've been working together. And Anderson said when he was with Boston, he got to see in a similar shared workout space, David Price and Chris Sale workout. And so now he's kind of passing that information and that uh, experience along to the younger guys. Yeah, you you walk around the complex for a little bit and there's like people are buzzing everywhere. There's, you know, there's bodies going in all different parts of the facility. Um, there's the minor league hitting cages. There's the major league cages. There's multiple fields. And <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned that and it was really emphasized by Shapiro. He wanted to make it clear that this wasn't going to be a segregated complex and that uh, he wanted everyone to mix. He wanted those minor league guys to, to go up. And he mentioned, you know, minor league guys will go up to Matt Chapman in the weight room and they'll take photos with him and, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll chat about, about whatever um, they feel like talking about. And we saw that when Kevin Gosman threw his, um, his simulated game against it was an inter-squad game, I guess, against a mishmash of guys, right? And, you know, we saw Gosman warming up, and then, you know, we were sitting behind the backstop, and we turned around, and there was, like, a whole gaggle of people. It was uh, Ross Atkins was there. I, we saw Irv Carter. You got to talk to Trent Palmer, some, some of the uh, Blue Jays' big prospects. There were minor league coaches. There were um, stat people. Uh, it was everyone wanted to see Gosman, and they wanted to see how he goes about things, and yeah, as, as, as you explored a little bit in your interviewing, there's a lot of value to be had there. Yeah, I think it it's funny. Obviously, you expect a guy like Atkins to be there to get kind of a first look at his 
big prize possession that gave him $110 million. He's not his possession. I'll <laughs> retract that. He's a living, breathing human. But um, yeah, and then we saw Atkins, and then I turn around and there's like 50 different prospects. I'm like, whoa, okay. We're not the only ones who are interested in seeing Kevin Gosman work. But uh, yeah, I think we definitely didn't get to see it functioning. We got the tour when it was a little bit more cleared out. But I can only imagine like the conversations that are going on in all of these shared spaces mm-hmm. and uh, the chips, not the chips on shoulders, but more of like the carrots dangled in front of these young guys being like, hey, look at what happens when you move up a level. Look at what you can get access to and look at the work it takes to get to these levels. Yeah, that was that was an important part of it. And Shapiro made a point of stating that you know, he wants this to kind of break the tradition of minor leaguers essentially being treated like crap. Like there's no other way to put it. He mm-hmm. says, you know, you know, the food, you know, the, the, the access, the coaching, you know, the, he wanted that all to change. Well, there was a line about Buck Martinez was on the tour and Mark turned, turned to him at one point and said, Oh, this isn't like when you were playing and Buck said something along some the lines of, yeah, we only ever got soup for meals, <laughs> soup and orange slices. <laughs> Uh, which is obviously not enough to sustain a uh, functioning you uh, wonder guys, young athlete. why guys were throwing 89 miles an hour back then. <laughs> yeah, so that gives some indication. And then we finished our tour. Um, well, actually, we finished the tour and we got to chat with Ross Atkins. But then the next day we had a, uh, a media Q&A with Mark Shapiro. And we were sitting in what was called the Paul Beeston conference room. Um, and if we were looking for comparables, it felt like we were in the the Cloud City dining room where Darth Vader and all the characters are sitting in uh, The Empire Strikes Back that came to mind. It's like this all white room with a long table. It, it wasn't it wasn't your traditional um, environment for, for a media Q&A. But Mark- in this comparison, would Mark Shapiro be Darth Vader? <laughs> and then would Mark's dog be uh, Chewbacca? No, but I'm thinking Boba Fett. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that makes more sense because they wouldn't be on the same side. Um, yes, Mark's dog Cleo was there for a little bit. Um, but, you know, we haven't had a chance to speak with Shapiro in person too many times, um, but he was quite candid with with a lot of the questions that the media asked. And he gave some uh, interesting insight on a variety of topics. Um, Mitch, what do you want to talk about first? Yeah, I think, yeah, there really was, we got to the end of the meeting and everyone kind of stood up and looked at each other. And it's like, there was like 15 different takeaways that we could hit Mm -hmm. on first there. And everyone's like, what is the story here? Obviously talked about the renovation, which is big. And it's kind of been reported a lot. We don't know that many details. Maybe we don't have to talk about it for too long, but it sounds like there is going to be a significant, I can only imagine uh, there's no budget out yet, but hundreds of millions of dollar renovation to mainly the lower bowl of the Rogers Center that's going to take place over the next two off seasons and into the years, maybe a little bit. Uh, But my biggest kind of takeaway, and I think maybe your biggest takeaway too, is what he had to say uh, about access to players and the new vaccination rules in Canada. Uh, What was your kind of reaction to his comments on that? I know those kind of blew up on Twitter after. Yeah. So I'll start with what Shapiro initially said, which was suspected by everyone this offseason. You know, we hadn't really heard anyone go on the record about um, vaccination status affecting Toronto's pursuit of free agents and trade candidates. Um, We know now, of course, that everyone on the Blue Jays is vaccinated. Um, They wouldn't be playing in Toronto if they weren't. 
and that's kind of doubled down on by Canada's mandate um, on cross-border vaccination, right? So you need to be vaccinated uh, as an athlete traveling into Canada. Um, so Shapiro was quite honest um, about how vaccination status affected uh, talks and trades. You know, you 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 gave him a question and he answered back that, you know, they did broach the idea of having a player get vaccinated specifically to play for Toronto, which I thought was interesting. It was almost like, you know, incentives. Like, do you give, you know, it's a, it's a weird discussion. Like, do you give the guy an extra couple mil to, to get a vaccine? I mean, I would, I would have taken that deal. And then he caught quite heated. Um, probably the most animated we saw him. Oh yeah. For uh, sure. I've or I've ever seen him and certainly the most animated we saw him in that um, that media availability um, when he talked about competitive advantages and disadvantages due to uh, border travel. So I, I can't remember who asked him, but he went um, on a bit of a spiel about um, some of the U.S. media reporting that, you know, the Yankees are at a competitive disadvantage um, because, you know, they, their players can't travel to Canada due to uh, their vaccination status. And uh, Shapiro said, I almost jumped through my phone screen when I see a reporter write that it's a competitive advantage of the Blue Jays because teams can't bring players across the border. He said, you got to be freaking kidding me. I imagine he wanted to use a different F word. Um, yeah, he pointed out the... The other competitive disadvantages that Toronto's gone through the last two years, you know, they played all of 2020 in Buffalo. You know, that's not that's not a home stadium. They played the start of 2021, and this feels like a million years ago. But they they played that in Dunedin, and the home home players like Blue Jays players were getting heckled and jeered by Red Sox fans, and it was not an ideal scenario. And then he said, you know, what about Buffalo? What about all of that? Uh, he made it clear that it's an unfair criticism in his eyes to say Toronto's at a competitive advantage. Yeah, I think it's, you're right. He was super candid and that was seemingly one of the most candid moments, but he definitely wanted to get the point across that he thought the, the talking points about the disadvantage or the advantage for the blue Jays with this law uh, was BS. And, and I think he did get that point across. I've seen even American media kind of being a little more receptive to the fact that, the Blue Jays' off-season plans, more than every other team, were affected. And the Blue Jays had to choose not to sign unvaccinated players. Well, the, the other AL East teams probably could also have chosen to not sign uh, unvaccinated players. So it, it kind of goes both ways And that he made that point very clear. And I, it was very interesting to see him trying to get that point across. And it was interesting to see the kind of the receptiveness to that point from the online media. Yeah, it seems like people recognized that Toronto... Uh, was in a corner there. I mean, it's, it's, and you mentioned vaccination status online and, and you're going to get a, a, a flurry of um, noise, good and bad. Um, so it was nice that he went on the record and was able to give some insight into that. He also um, opened up a little bit about Toronto's pursuit of Freddie Freeman. Um, I thought he, he was candid in that regard as well. You know, he said there was plenty of interest between or at least on the Blue Jays side in, in talking to Freeman, he acknowledged they spoke to Freeman, um, but he also acknowledged, and you know, this has been widely known that he wasn't a logical fit on Toronto's roster. 
Um, there were concerns about tying up the DH spot, you know, with we Toronto's DH spot is going to have uh, a lot of people rolling through it, especially, you know, if Greg Bird makes the team like we talked about and if Alejandro Kirk is there and they carry three catchers, there's a lot of variables uh, up in the air. Shapiro said the bat and the person fit perfectly, um, but the position and the defense didn't at the end of the day and then and, and Toronto chose to go elsewhere. Yeah, I think, and I'll make this clear that this is mostly speculation, but how I kind of read between the lines there was that there was interest from both sides. There was mm-hmm. interest in Freeman due to his connections with the country that were maybe expressed and why talks got a little bit further than just seeing what was there. Mm-hmm. But then ultimately Freeman was kind of weighing other offers that just that they could make him make more sense. And so the blue Jays just never got to the dollar figure. I, I think Freddie choosing to play for Canada shows how much kind of this country means to him and signing with the blue Jays would have shown it once again, but ultimately it was going to come down to the dollar figure. And I agree if the decision was made not to sign him because they didn't want to have two first base DHs on the team. I agree with that decision. I think it would have just been kind of a logistical nightmare to balance that for the next six or seven years. Yeah. Toronto was definitely hyper-focused on making their lineup more left-handed. <clears throat> of course, Freeman was the best, you know, left-handed option available. Um, you know, it wasn't a fit otherwise. And so you, you could look at it as a way of like taking the big chunk of needs and then dealing with all the other logistical problems afterwards. But uh, they didn't end up going that route. And instead, actually, Toronto decided to go to the trade market. Um, it happened last week. I can't remember which day exactly. It's all, it's all been a big mishmash. Whatever of- day it rained. That's all I know. It was <laughs> right. supposed it to was, be the slow day. <laughs> it was the rain out day. So Toronto traded Randall Gritchick. Uh, they covered half his contract to, to, and sent him to the Colorado Rockies in exchange for Ryan Altapia and a minor league infielder named Adrian Pinto. <laughs> Mitch, Mitch and I were hanging out on the, at the, uh, the player development complex that day, and we were just kind of milling about because it was a rain day, and, and we, had, we wanted to break up some of our writing. So we were standing around by the batting cages, and we had saw Randall Gritchick, and he, he uh, was chatting with an equipment manager, and we're like, oh, there's Randall. I don't know what he's doing. And then you know, we got the notification that he'd been traded and we're like, oh my goodness, we're, we're so dumb. We didn't even think anything about it. Um, but yeah, Mitch, you want to tell, uh, tell our listeners how you confirmed that Gritchick had been traded? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my source for that one was Randall Gritchick walking by talking to someone on the phone about how he'd been traded and how about asking that person how they found out we, and we learned kind of later that he, found out via text people shooting in Rockies question mark and that he then got the confirmation from Ross Atkins. But yeah, that's some people have their, their sources and I have me just being in the right place at the right (laughs) time. So I'll I'll take that one too. Sometimes that's a lot of what this all is, um, is just being around. And so um, I had a chance to speak with a source of mine and they told me that Toronto had been pursuing Tapia um, as far back as the GM meetings in November, I think the industry understood that Toronto was in desperate need of a left-handed bat. Um, and so the talks with the Rockies were kind of a, an ongoing thing this offseason that only ramped up, I guess, in the last week or so. Um, there were a couple deals that were initially proposed um, that just that didn't work. 
And then eventually the team settled on, um, or Toronto, I guess, settled on trading Grichik um, for Tapia in kind of a, you know, a win-win for both sides, right? It's, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't say either team's getting a significantly better player on either end. It's more a trade made out of fit. And it's a move that, you know, a team as deep as Toronto can make when you're trading guys, you know, just because they bat right-handed or they bring a different look to your lineup. Um, that tells you a lot about the talent of the team. Mitch, what, is, what does Tapia bring to Toronto's lineup? Yeah, I think you're right. It is kind of obvious that it is a weird trade where at the major league level, both teams can get better because Randall Gritchick's a guy who you probably want playing 600 plate appearances if you're Colorado. But yeah, Tapia brings the speed and defense and left-handed bat that this Blue Jays kind of bench and outfield mix desperately needed. I, I think everyone was talking about it and Atkins would go out and publicly say, oh, we don't like need a left-handed bat. We need a left-handed bat that's better than our right-handed bats. I don't know if Tapia is necessarily better than the right-handed bats. I think he is more of just getting the left-handed bat in the mix. I think maybe they see something, maybe they see some mechanical adjustments to get him back more to the fly ball line drive guy that he was when he first came up and not the guy who's smashing the ball into the ground at like a 68% clip and then running the first base. He'll be a very entertaining player to watch if that's what he does. Cause if you like balls in play and you like old school baseball and, and getting infield hits, you're going to love Rymel Tapia. But yeah, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of analysis to see why this is as Atkins put it a better compliment to the team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Atkins, you know, said that him, he and Randall had been discussing kind of Gritchick's role on this team. He never full out, you know, admitted that, you know, Randall was pushing for a trade, but he just said that they had ongoing discussions about what his role would look like. And, you know, at the end of the day, it Atkins acknowledged that it could be hard for Gritchick to, at this point in his career, look at the opening day lineup and see that, you know, he's not a fit here. He's the fourth guy. Um, so it was a trade out of, um, Excess, I guess. Um, you have all these excessive resources and you have right-handed power bats. You need a left-handed bat. And so I guess I comp the Tapia deal up to like a, he's like a bizarro Gritchick. He's the opposite. In, in and you said way. when the deal was, you're like, oh, he's the nega Gritchick. Yeah, he's the opposite. He's the anti Gritchick. Um, so he had something different. And when we got to meet him, you know, we kind of asked about the person he was. He's kind of a quirky hitter. Right. He'll do a, kind of a, a weird crouch when he gets to two strikes. Um, he's really fast. He's like a tall, you know, kind of like a uh, lanky guy. His swing is all um, arms and elbows. Uh, but we asked him specifically about, you know, how he fits into the outfield. Right. Um, can he play? He's traditionally a left fielder. He plays the corners, um, but we were curious, like, you know, Gritchick was Toronto's backup center fielder, you know, and, and one they called on a lot. Yeah. And, and if George Springer, you know, can't do, you know, we, you and I, I think have said maybe what, 130 games. Yeah. Would be I think good. that's all you're like 121 30, I think is kind of, yeah. The best like that's scenario. kind of the best for Gritchick. So someone's got to fill those other spots in the center field. Um, and so I asked, Tapia, how do you, how comfortable do you feel playing center field? And he said, for me, it's like eating rice and beans at my house, um, which is all to say that he's very comfortable. He got, he gave the media a good laugh. Um, 
with that one, but he grew up playing center field in the Dominican. Um, every outfielder really comes up playing center field. Um, Tapia's not really known for his arm, but his his range his range is important. What if what if um, what are your early takes on what we've seen from Tapia so far on the field? Yeah, we saw about five innings of left field play from him alongside Springer. So with my deep and extensive scouting knowledge based off five innings, he looks exactly like kind of what I thought he did. He, he's very speedy. He's a rangy guy. He um, at the plate, he hit a couple hard line drives, which I think is what you would want to see. But yeah, in the outfield, he made all the plays. There was no real difficult plays, but we were kind of looking for how they could line up the outfield differently. Uh, Lourdes in left field, we kind of all know the defender that Lourdes is, kind of an arm first guy. But if you have a defensive alignment that puts Lourdes to DH at times and you put Tappy out there, I think that gives you a better defensive outfield. It maybe takes the stress off of a guy like Springer, who is an average to above average outfielder defensively. Mm -hmm. And it, it really elevates the team defense overall. Yeah, I wouldn't say Springer's known for his range, right? Like he's not the most fleet of foot center fielder. I think it's more like his composure and his jumps that that does well. So, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk to George specifically about how the outfield lines up um, and how someone like Tapia can help, you know, you're, you sh- when you shade guys a certain direction, uh, knowing that you have a speedy, you know, outfielder to your right. Um, that could certainly make a difference. But in terms of the fit, um, off the fields, we talked to Teoscar Hernandez yesterday, and uh, he said he's just one of the guys, right? Tapia's got his locker uh, in uh, in Dunedin, right next to to Lourdes, to Teo. Uh, he's just one of the guys. It's gonna uh, be the jokester corner, yeah. No doubt, it is. yeah. <laughs> he's sitting at the back of the class, joining the class clowns already. Um, yeah, they were already laughing it up. He said, Teo said, um, Rymel's a funny guy. Um, and that he'll 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 fit right in, and he's also challenging Lourdes for the best hair competition. I think we we noticed that yesterday too. I think Bo might take some serious <laughs> offense to you not even mentioning his he's name gonna, in that category. He's going to get bumped off the podium soon. Um, another big thing. So we're recording this on Monday evening, March twenty eighth, and some of the big news that came down the pipe was that Toronto's starting to trim its roster a little bit. They're making. Um, some cuts, which is, you know, in baseball, it's not, you know, these guys aren't becoming free agents the way, you know, you hear in football, a training camp when they're cutting down the roster. So what Toronto's doing now is basically acknowledging or having, telling some players, Hey, listen, you're not going to make the big league squad, start preparing for the minor league season. And so you'll start working in minor league camp. Now, these guys who have been optioned, um, they can still play in regular spring training games. They just won't be you know, on the opening day roster. So some notables from that list, um, we see Gabriel Moreno, Gabriel Moreno, rather, so he's yes. corrected us. Uh, I think it's fair to, yeah, Gabby, I think is what he likes to go by kind of colloquial. So that helps you remember Gabriel. Yeah. So Gabby Moreno um, is probably the most notable one. Um, Arelvis Martinez, of course, who looked great again this spring, as he always tends to do, but I, I don't think there was ever a chance he was going to crack the roster. Um, Josh Palacios, another guy who you spoke to, um, but Charlie kind of gave a hint early in the spring that when you asked him, what does Palacios bring to the team? And he said, oh, you know, those guys in like AAA, right? They just got to keep swinging and get noticed. And we're like, okay, well, that is starting, starting in AAA. In AAA. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you make of these moves? I mean, there's, there's not a ton to read into, but the fact that Moreno showed up to camp a little bit late, I'm, I'm sure is significant. 
Yeah, I think it's a combination of that. The Moreno and Martinez are maybe the, the most eye-popping names on this list, but these are all guys that at the end of the day were not going to probably make the major league team. They're at a point in the competitive window where the 26th, 7th, 8th man on their roster is going to be a really good player. Mm -hmm. So it's not a bad thing to be one of these option guys to AAA because every single baseball team in 162 games is going to need depth. These option guys like Bowden Francis, Thomas Hatch, Kay, Otto Lopez, I would bet we see all of those guys in the big leagues this year. And then Moreno, Palacios, all those, almost all the guys on this list, I think we will see. Uh, but I think it is just kind of a weird offseason timing-wise because of the shortened spring. And we're going to see these guys in spring training games over the next two weeks anyways. anyways this is really just a paper move, uh, maybe to clear up some room in the locker room. I don't know how that works. Or to, to not have to send these guys stuff to Toronto because I know they're going to send a bus up in the next couple of days with a bunch yeah. of these guys' items. So maybe that's the impetus for these early options. Yeah, again, there's not a, there's not a ton to read into. Um, you talked to Thomas Hatch yesterday, you know, he said of note, he's being stretched out, right? I think we'd expect him to be part of the AAA rotation. Um, another guy, Sean Anderson, who's being stretched out. He threw... I think this AAA rotation yeah. is going to be really good. How was, how was Buffalo last year? Were they, were they, good? they were good. They had, I, I've asked a few guys about this because there is normally playoffs. I think in the international league, it's like first half winner versus second half winner or something weird like that. But last year, there was no playoffs. And instead, they're like, okay, you're going to play 10 more regular season games. The Bisons made that 10-game playoff, and then half their games got rained out. So, like, no one really knows who won. And I think the Bisons kind of claimed victory because they won the regular season. So, yeah, that's a long-winded answer to say, yes, they were very good last year. Yeah, I guess no one <laughs> talked about the uh, the circus that was happening in AAA. I mean, they they were in Trenton, New Jersey, mm -hmm. right, at the, at the start of the year, and they were – they were the Buffalo Bisons, but they were wearing the Trenton Thunder jerseys. And uh, when we were watching Alec Manoa at the start, you know, that was, was kind of a little bit confusing. The Thunder Bisons. <laughs> Thunder Bisons. Um, but, you know, we didn't expect any of these guys really to crack the roster. I think the biggest position battles come in Toronto's bullpen. Um, you know, we, we talked about a core of guys like um we mentioned jordan romano tim Meza, yimi garcia who as long as you know his arm is ramped up he'll be on the team trevor richards adam simber ross stripling i think you know you and i agreed that those guys are untouchable in terms of their roles like they they not untouchable in trades of course but um, you know, they have a guaranteed spot on this team. They're not fighting for anything. It's more the the second and third tier, I think, that has us interested. Um, Mitch, what names are we looking at there? Yeah, so those six guys, we can kind of pencil in. I, I literally have them penciled into my notebook right now. But then there's kind of a mix of seven guys for what I think is nearly guaranteed to be four more spots. Charlie Montoya basically said yesterday that they're going to carry yeah. 10 relievers it makes the most sense to carry 10 arms yeah with the, the and especially time. like their starters are going to be up to 85 pitches you're going to need guys to go two three innings in those first couple series so the next couple names are julian merriweather ryan baraki uh, we have taylor saucedo andrew vasquez trent thornton and then two other guys who are kind of an interesting setups there's nate pearson we all know kind of the nate pearson story is he going to be a starter is he a reliever we know he can help this team. It's just kind of in what capacity will he be on it at what point? 
And then David Phelps, who's a non-roster invite, so he would need to be put on the 40-man. But he's also kind of the veteran guy who I think you can make the case for is probably the most likely shot out of any of these six or seven names or, or the guy I'd be most confident about making the team. Yeah, Toronto has two 40-man spots. Over, yes, I after think. the Chapman trade, they yeah, a couple. They have a couple. And, you know, is Bird on the 40-man? No. So he would need to... Um, he, we, I think, you know, that's a whole other discussion, but we think he's probably going to make the team. I, if I had to bet today, I would say they're at 38 spots. Those are the two non-roster guys who are yeah. going to take up those spots. Yeah. Um, so that leaves, of course, David Phelps. Um, he didn't have a great outing today, but you know, he's a veteran guy that looked phenomenal. <laughs> I think that gets forgotten a lot with how Toronto's season unfolded, but he was phenomenal um, in his 10 innings of work. I believe he struck out or 10 and one third. He struck out 15 guys. Like he was, he was great. And then he tore his lat muscle off his bone in the, like a, an awful, awful injury. Um, I like him as a right-handed arm. Um, I mean, he'd be maybe in the same tier as a guy like Julian Merriweather, who's not had a great spring either. Um, I had a chance to speak with Merriweather at the start of the year and, you know, he kind of, or at the start of the spring, rather, um, not even the start of the spring when we got here, I'm sure, you know, it's not an important detail, but um, I'm just a complete mess. Merriweather said, um, you know, he felt like this, this year he can let loose a little bit more, you know, last year after that oblique injury early in the season, he was a little timid. And I think, I think we kind of knew that, he kept aggravating his injuries. Um, and when he came back in September, you know, he was not, he was not the guy that was throwing a hundred with the 80 mile an hour changeup and, and making, you know, the meat of the Yankees order looking foolish uh, in, in, in April of 2021, I asked Merriweather, is that the guy you want to be? And, or do you need to reinvent yourself? And he said, no, 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 that's, that's the guy I want to be. I want to be that guy from the Yankees uh, series at the beginning of the season. But um, from what we've seen this spring, you know, the velocity's back up there, but he's not exactly looking like the Merriweather of old, that flash that we saw in April. Yeah. And I think it's kind of an interesting dilemma for the Blue Jays because that Merriweather is like the second best reliever on this <laughs> team. So, but you don't need him to be that. You just need him for this bullpen to be a capable big league reliever. So it's, where does he kind of fall on that spectrum? And I think he's shown that high ceiling that you carry him on the team out of camp. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar situation for a guy like Ryan Baraki, who's shown that high ceiling before, also hasn't had the best spring, has kind of been hit pretty hard. Uh, so I, I think you kind of weigh with those 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th bullpen spots, ceiling versus kind of floor. And I think you have a good, stable bullpen i know blue jays fans are going to remember last year's bullpen and define it in any other way but stable but i i do think you kind of have your options in simber and richards now that you didn't have at the beginning of last year and even stripling i think is a guy who you can rely on for two to three mm -hmm. innings he might give up a run or maybe two in those outings but he's not going to give the five run blow-ups that cost him so many games last year so you can take the upside shots yeah yeah like i having the strong core of Richards and Simber and even knowing what you have a little bit more with Mesa, it just opens up like his the average bullpen. You got to take flyers on guys like that have significant upside guys with stuff. And I think Merriweather is for sure. One of those guys. So having that core 
of Simber and, and Richards, guys, you know what you're getting out of. I believe like that's got to give Toronto's front office and, and Charlie Montoya, especially a lot more comfort to work, to work with. Cause you know, at some points last year, he was, you know, walking out to the mound and looking at the bullpen, like who the hell am I bringing in next? Yeah. Like what, what guy is it, who was in New Hampshire two days ago is like, coming into this game? Is it Carl Edwards Jr.? Is it Anthony Castro? Is it, you know, we saw Tommy Malone. <laughs> we talked about him with the, you know, the, the slowest fastball in all of baseball. Um, another guy who's out of options. And I think is, this is a really like a, a real put up or shut up season for, for, Ryan Barucki. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't looked amazing in spring either. I mean, it depends how much you put into spring outings, usually not a lot, um, but he's an intriguing guy. He's really amped up his velocity the last, you know, two seasons once he's kind of converted to, to a full-time relief pitcher and he's pushed past some injuries. How, how do you like Barucki's chance of making the team? Yeah. I think when you're weighing that it's like him, versus Taylor Saucedo versus Andrew Vasquez. And the first thing is advantage Baraki because the other two guys have options. Mm-hmm. So if all else is equal, you take the guy you might lose on waivers to, to the big leagues. But I think Vasquez has looked really good this spring. I think he might be the guy, if he doesn't make it, he's the first maybe arm in general up, definitely the first lefty up. Mm-hmm. So if you think you still have something there with Rocky, or if you think you would lose him on waivers, which is kind of both sides of that calculus, maybe you, you take him and just say, Hey, we're going to need Andrew Vasquez at some point this season. Let's do a little roster management here. Yeah. The, just the flip side is, you know, we want to win now, right? Like we can't afford to have that slow takeoff that Toronto had last season out of the bullpen, right? Like all those, like the Tanner Roark game in Texas and all those bullpen losses, like, that's ultimately what, you know, caught Toronto. They just needed to win they one needed, of those, Right. Yeah. So with that attitude in mind, I think Toronto can't afford to slowly build up, you know, the roster. They need to come out with the absolute best, you know, bullpen they have. Mm-hmm. And if they, if Toronto determines that Baraki doesn't give them that, you know, I, I think then he should go on waivers, right? Like there's, He'll get claimed for sure. I imagine he's still pretty young. He's shown that, you know, maybe teams will try to work him back into a starter. I'm not, not to say that I know that for sure, but I think you'd lose him if you put him through waivers, but you know, it's a tough decision, but the season will be full of tough decisions because Toronto will be really good. If you were, so Romano, Meza, Garcia, Richard, Simber, Stripling, those are our six. If you were to guess at the other four who make it, who would you say all give you a second to think about it by doing mine. I would probably say Meriwether Phelps, Pearson and Vasquez. Uh, I think you, I might even say Baraki over Vasquez just because of the conversation we just had, but those would be my 10. Are you differing from that in any way? Yeah, I think, I think Nate Pearson is like a huge X factor for this bullpen construction, right? Like we kind of came into the spring with the understanding that Pearson would just be like a long man out of the bullpen and he would log innings if and even if they went to like a, a six man rotation, something like that, he would be the guy. But you know, we got here and from both Ross Atkins and Charlie Montoyo, they've kind of told us like there's a chance Pearson stays stretched out, but he starts in triple A. Right. I mean, I don't know if if I agree with that entirely because you know he's a guy that can help your team immediately, of course, in whatever capacity. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, I would, I would think Meriwether Phelps, 
Um, and I, I, at the end of the day, I do think Toronto will start the season with Brucky. I think like he's been in the organization for 11 years, right? This is his 11th year. I think, you know, they like him enough to keep him around, but you know, he's the type of guy who a few bad outings out of the gates and uh, he's, he's going to go through waivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's though that's, I mean, there's been some interesting roster battles in the past couple seasons, but this isn't the most interesting season for that just because this team is better than they've ever broken a camp with. So even with the extra couple roster spots, if there was 26 roster spots, there would be like one relief pitching battle and like maybe Greg Bird makes this team. But the, yeah. the extra couple roster spots have thankfully given us something to talk about. Yeah, it was like it's it's not the most exciting. Like this team is not a spring team because, you know, it's not – they have their established big leaguers. You know, they have their young superstars. They have, like, their rotation from the get-go was set. Like, we knew there was not – I think that's probably the most exciting if you're coming into spring and it's like, who's going to be the fourth, fifth guy? You know, who might take the jump from bullpen to starter? Um, that's not been the case. We know that, you know, 99% chance Barrios is your opening day starter, right? And then Gosman, Manoa, Ryu, Kikuchi, like that. Is, that's been set the moment Toronto, you know, put pen to paper with Kikuchi. Um, so in that respect, it hasn't been super exciting, but we've still, you know, had a, had a really good time covering spring training. And we've, we've learned a lot more about a lot of different guys on the roster. Um, so Mitch, what's kind of been your favorite, your favorite storyline, your favorite story that you've, you've learned covering the team this spring? Hmm. I, one, I came in, I'll, I'll give you two. This is kind of cheating. I'm copying it on your question, but I'll, I'll give you two. Uh, I think one I came in super interested about was Kevin Gosman and his blisters, just because I'd seen a pitching ninja video where he mentioned it in passing. And I wanted to know why he kind of likes blisters or why the goal for him pitching is blisters. Uh, I did a bit of an interesting breakdown that involves potato chips and urine that you can go read about. Not, not together. I'll make no, that thankfully explicit. God. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then another one I came into camp not knowing I was going to write, and that was kind of the story of Greg Bird and him going to high school in Colorado with Kevin Gossman and being yeah. a really, really good pair. He was Gossman's catcher and how good that team was and wanted to be in kind of Bird's path back uh, to a, re- a reunion with his old high school teammate and kind of overcoming the injuries that have plagued his entire career. And thankfully for him, he's mashed and stayed healthy. So it's been kind of a bonus for that story and that he's got a real good shot to make this team. Mm-hmm. And the hardest part of that story was not making bird is the word. Your, your I made it about 850 words and I didn't stick that one in <laughs> once. If he makes the team, it's going to, it's going to show up somewhere. Yeah, of course. I think I overheard him in the clubhouse talking about like how people always say that about him from like the song surfing bird and the, uh, and the whole family guy reference. Um, for me this spring, wow. I, uh, yeah, I definitely came in the way you did with just some like, little nuggets of info that I was genuinely curious about. And then I figured, you know, our readers would be curious about, and that's at the end of the day, how good journalism is done. Right. Um, not to toot my own horn, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good it's journalist. A, Ethan. <laughs> yeah. It's a foolproof recipe. Right. So I was, I've always been curious about this for a long time. Um, and if you guys watch a major league warm up, you'll see pitchers throwing around, not, not everyone, but some guys will be throwing around a football. <clears throat> and so Mitch and I had this discussion, you know, before we came here and we thought, you know, maybe they're just doing it because it's fun, right? Now that's part of it. That's part of it, but there's still like a tactical, you know, purpose to it all. Um, 
And that's guys like, you know, how it helps them mimic their arm action. So a football, you have to be nice and tight uh, to get a good spiral. You know, you can't reach back. Otherwise it'll kind of knuckle out of your hands. So I talked to Alec Manoa and um, he said, yeah, it helps, you know, keep my biceps, my, my shoulder in line. He said his thoracic, what's that? Jeez, what's Don't that? Don't look at me for body parts. <laughs> I th- thoratic, like when guys get thor- thor- thoracic outlet oh, syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. It's kind of what well, that thing is like the Matt Harvey injury a few years ago, long, long while ago. Um, but anyway, he says it keeps his shoulder and his biceps in line. Um, and then he says, oh, yeah, David Phelps does it too. Said so his football is a lot smaller though. And I was like, oh, haha, like, because he's got like smaller hands than you because you're just like a giant person. But there's actually a purpose to the smaller football. So I talked to David Phelps and, uh, you know, he, Manoa said he, he uses the football for all his pitches, but to help all his pitches. Phelps said it helps him particularly with his cutter because he can get down the side of a football and kind of spin it off his fingers properly. And uh, he said, you know, it, it also helps break up the monotony of, of just those early throws that kind of suck and you're just doing flips before you get loose. So that one was really, really cool. And I, I was happy that I finally got to, to tell that story. And then I was also, you know, while we were down here, another storyline that kind of hit us was Tor- Toronto was trying out the pitch comm system, which we talked about in our last podcast. Uh, that was really cool. I wanted to see how catcher, what catchers thought about that and um, what they also thought about some of the other rule changes that were coming to baseball, um, particularly the, the automatic strike zone, um, which, you know, would take receiving and take a lot of the, uh, the goal, the, a lot of the fun out of catching and a lot of the purpose that a defense first catcher can give you. So, yeah, that was another one that <laughs> we also talked about. I didn't think it got much into the story, but the stealing first base rule that you said you kind of liked. I, I love some chaos. Add chaos to my baseball and I'm all in. Oh, man, I couldn't even imagine. As a catcher, yeah, of course you're going to be against <laughs> it. It's, it's the hard work for you guys. Oh, just a guy taken out of the, like, taken off out of the box. And you can do it with a guy on first base, too. It's not even like the drop third strike rule. It's just like ball kicks away and guy's gone. Like you could just have the speediest, like someone like uh, Tapia would be great at that, right? Left-hander out of the box quick. I, it makes it a little bit more like we'd a, be talking about Malik Smith's spot on this <laughs> roster. If that rule existed right now, yeah, we would for sure. Um, yeah. So it's been, it's been a great spring for us. It's been a good spring for the blue Jays too. Um, but now I think once we get into, you know, this week, next week, really, the focus will shift to opening day. Um, so, you know, you'll hear from us once, once more, we'll do another podcast before opening day. Um, but, but that's the focus now. Um, so that's April 8th for Toronto, the return of Marcus Simeon, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about uh, at great lengths uh, once he's there. And then of course, before the podcast, but uh, that's all we have for this evening. Um, thanks so much to everyone for following along this spring. Uh, it's, it's been a good ride and we hope to, uh, continue bring, continue to bring some more coverage, uh, to our readers and to our listeners, uh, up to opening day and then through to the season. Seven months of us. Stay used <laughs> oh, <to God. laughs> I'm already sick of my own voice. Hopefully our listeners aren't. So thanks again for listening, uh, and stay tuned for our next podcast.